Lord, we surrender to you. We give everything to you. We give our fears to you. We give the things that we're carrying that are weighing us down to you, the struggles. And we give you thanks, Lord, that you died for us on the cross. Thank you that we have our identity in you, Lord. And we receive from you all that we need. We receive your love and kindness. And we give it away, Lord. Help us to be generous-hearted. Help us to feel like you feel. We put our arms out and we pray, Lord, that we can see what you see, that we can give to the lost, the alone, the widowed, the least, and bring them home, Lord. Bring them back to you. Amen. Great. Just uh, just before we were, um, whilst Claire was speaking, there was a, a great uh, cacophony of children outside the room. Did you hear them? And it just suddenly reminded me: we need to pray for we need to pray for them now, don't we? Lord, bless the children in this church. Lord, whatever they're doing, wherever they are, may their lives become enriched by knowing you, by your presence, by your love for them. May they know that, Lord. And bless those that are teaching them and leading them. They must be exhausted by now. And, uh, Lord, we're so grateful to you for them. What would we do without our children's workers and our youth workers? Lord, we pray you'd bless them and strengthen them in their inner beings in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, uh, one of the things I forgot to say, you know, I was talking th- th- this morning about that uh, uh, guy in our congregation who's had that vision in hospital. Uh, what I forgot to say, uh, Susie reminded me, is that, of course, his wife had been praying for, her for, for, for him for 40 years. <sighs> and so keep going, all right, keep going. And, uh, you know, a, a year ago I'd have said he was the most least likely person that I'd ever imagined becoming a Christian. But actually, we should never say that about anybody because of the grace of God. God chooses and decides to just bring the most least likely people we know. So think about the least likely person you could ever imagine becoming a Christian. God's grace can get them. <laughs> All right, Lord, get them. <laughs> and bring them in. Bring them home. That's why I love that prayer, Lord, bring them home. Okay, we're going to continue. We're going to do another two from the card. Uh, the two for this session is um, is personal ministry, in other words, service and providential relationships. And I don't know how you learn best when you're at school, but I guess that a lot of us uh, learn best at school by doing. Most people learn the best way is by actually doing it. Uh, I remember I used to be a geography teacher at uh, Ardingly College in Sussex, and uh, I, I must confess, actually, that I wasn't very good at it and uh, wasn't a very good geographer either. But 
Uh, when, I ever t when I taught meteorology, it was the one part of the course that I really knew very little about, particularly when I was talking about jet streams. I really hadn't a clue what they were. Anyway, I reckon the first year I taught on jet streams, I reckon about 10% of the classroom understood. The next year when I taught on it, I reckon about 20% understood. The third year, I reckon about 50% understood jet streams. The fourth year, I, I think about 70% understood about jet streams. But it wasn't until about the fifth year that I finally understood <laughs> about jet streams. And the truth of the matter is, that in this room right now, the one person that's learning the most, there's only one person in here that's learning the most. It's me. Because I'm doing it. You poor guys have just got to sit and suffer and listen. So you might pick up 10%, 5%, 2%, 3%, I don't know. But I'm the one that learns because I'm doing it. And Jesus, or at least James says that, doesn't he? Don't merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Paul in Philippians 4, whatever you've learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And uh, throughout the whole Bible, you've got a whole list of people who, are, who God said, no, I want you to do this, I want you to do this, I want you to put it into practice. And every single one of them, almost without fail, felt totally inadequate. <laughs> None of them thought, yeah, I can do that, no trouble, you know, easy. No one, not Joshua, not Moses. Not Gideon, not Jeremiah, not Isaiah. No, none of them did. So I think, we, you know, we're all in good... If we ever feel inadequate or, or slightly out of, out of pocket about it, then, you know, we're, we're in good company. And, and I love that bit where Jesus said to the disciples, you know, the great crowd, the hungry crowd, uh, 5,000 men, so there could have been at least 20,000 people there. And Jesus then says to them, okay, you do it, you feed them. What, us? Yeah, you no, know, you do it. And he says that the whole time, you do it. But I haven't got it. You know, it doesn't matter. You do it. I'll give you whatever you need. But you do it. And that's the whole point about this whole thing of, 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 uh, of ministry, isn't it? Our own personal ministry is that, is that we do it. And we learn by doing. And uh, one of the things that we, we need to do with our, all our congregation is to encourage everybody to actually serve in one way or another. And to do it. Because actually in doing it, they learn a lot about themselves they learn a lot about other people, and of course it, it blesses the whole congregation. We choose to give it away. I think that's one of the great principles, that whatever God does for us, we give it away. Whatever it is, if you've ever been blessed, just give it away. Find a way to give it away, serving one another. Uh, the other aspect, of course, is uh, this whole area of uh, personal, sorry, providential relationships, providential relationships. In other words, we all have special people in our lives, people we like to follow. Uh, in Hebrews 10, it says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I think that's, that's one of the most important aspects of why we need to be there Sunday morning. All right. So whenever Sunday morning comes around, you think, oh, shall we, shall we not? Just go. Because one of the most important things about being there Sunday morning is that you are a really important person for somebody else that's there. And they need to see you. You need to be there. You may not realize it, but actually you need to be there for someone else. 
These uh, providential relationships are so key. And uh, I don't know who your heroes are. I'm always slightly amazed at uh, some of the heroes uh, that people make, some of these celebrities. I haven't a clue who Kim Kardashian... I can't even say her name, let alone know what she does. I don't know, but I guess she must be a hero to somebody. Uh, some people have footballers as heroes. And I don't want to tread on... I, I am hopelessly... I, I'm just... There's not an inch of sportsman in me. I know this sleek physique. You, you think, how can that be, you know? He must be a sportsman. Absolutely not. So, uh, so I'm going to probably tread on a lot of people's toes. But sportsmen do say the funniest things. I came across these quotes, which are just hysterical. Uh, Thierry Henry said this, Sometimes in football you have to score goals. Well, I'm glad he's got that one. David Beckham, My parents have been there for me ever since I was about seven. <laughs> Mark Viduka, I would not be bothered if we lost every game as long as we won the league. Neville Southwell, I don't believe you can win. Sorry, if you don't believe you can win, there's no point in getting out of bed at the end of the day. <laughs> Alan Shearer, uh, I've never wanted to leave. I'm here for the rest of my life. And hopefully after that as well. <laughs> Obviously believes in the resurrection. That's wonderful. Mark Draper, I'd like to play for an Italian club like Barcelona. <laughs> 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 oh dear. Ian Wright, without being too harsh on David Beckham, he cost us the match. Jonathan Woodgate, Leeds is a great club and it's been my home for years, even though I live in Middlesbrough. <laughs> Stuart Pierce, I can see the carrot at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> Lee Henry, I took a whack on my left ankle, but somebody told me it was my right. Oh. I couldn't settle in Italy, said Ian Rush. It was like living in a foreign country. <laughs> uh, David Beckham, the very famous saying, I definitely want Brooklyn to be christened, but I don't know into what religion yet. And uh, Kevin Keegan, there'll be no siestas in Madrid tonight. <laughs> Somebody told him you don't have a siesta at night. <laughs> And uh, Chile have three options. They could win or they could lose. It's up to them. The tide is in their court now. <laughs> Sorry, uh, uh, probably very rude to take the mickey out of people's things, but there you go. I love those. Um, but personal relationships, actually having role models is really important. And I don't know who your role model has been, who, who that special person is. It may be someone here, it may be someone in your church, it may be someone in some other church. Someone that's always been there for you. And there's so many different examples in Scripture of Joshua and Moses and David and Jonathan, Paul and Barnabas. And uh, those people are absolutely key, absolutely key. And of course, the, the, the reverse is also true, as I said. You are a key person for someone else. You are a role model for someone else. It's a slightly scary thought. But actually, we are. And that's really important. And as the chap says in Hebrews, whoever he wrote it, let us consider. In other words, you know, it's not obvious. It's not, we've got to actually think it through. How can we help one another? How can we spur one another along? How can we be the role model for someone else? <coughs> now, um, the key to um, 
service, uh, serving one another, and personal relationships, of course, is the whole aspect of, of love, of doing it in love. You may, I don't know if you remember that, uh, and it makes me cringe every time I see it, and poor chap, it must make him cringe too, that very haunting interview of Charles and Diana just before they were married. Do you remember it? And the interview asked, uh, asked Diana, said, do you love him? And she said, yes, of course, in that rather coy, shy way that she used to say things. And do you remember he, he then, the interview then turned to Charles and said, do you love her? And he said, yes. Do you remember what he said next? Whatever love means, whatever that means. Well, what does it mean? Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, it's great. It's a great musical. And uh, Teve. You remember Teve was absolutely astounded that his daughter wanted to get married for love instead of an arranged marriage. And he couldn't even get his head around it. Never come across anybody that actually wanted to get married for love instead of an arranged marriage. And so he goes back and he, he asks his wife, he says, uh, Golde, do you love me? She says, do I what? Do you love me? You're a fool. Yes, I know, but do you love me? And she replies, do I love him? For 25 years, I've cooked for him, cleaned for him, starved for him. 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? That's not a bad exposition on the theme of love coming from a musical. But what is love? Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Famous passage, uh, one that uh, is very familiar. But um, let's just look at it again. 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have a gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body to, to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't proud, it doesn't uh, dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. But... For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what it is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part and then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. One of the uh, great things about the Christian faith is that there's only one rule. Do you realize that? There is only one rule. So it's not difficult, you know, it's not difficult to, to remember it because <laughs> there's only one rule. There's only one rule, it's love. Love God. And the second is like, namely this. In fact, it's almost the same. 
love your neighbor as yourself. They're almost uh, tweedledum, tweedledee, they go together. There's only one rule. We're, we're not, uh, you know, it's quite easy actually. And I, I taught in a school where I had to remember all the rules of the school and I could never remember them all. And I was a member of staff and I was meant to remember them all. But there's only one rule in the Christian life and that's love. And uh, because I'm a bit of a nerd, I, I did some statistics in the New Testament and, and uh, counted up all the references to, the, you know, to love in the New Testament. And uh, I found that there are 230 references to love in the New Testament. Eight of those references are about loving God. 72 of them are about loving one another. Which means to me that loving one another is nine times more important than loving God. Or if you like, what we do in worship every Sunday is not nearly as important as what we do when we leave church. Actually, loving one another is absolutely key. Jesus said, by, all, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Because it's very attractive, it's very magnetic, it's very evangelistic. And the extraordinary thing about, about Jesus is, in the New Testament, you, you find that all the people who are most unlike him, the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the outcasts, all the people who are most unlike him, liked him. <laughs> they thought, he's just so lovely. They were so attractive, they were so magnetic to him. Not because of his great parables, not because of his great teaching, but because of him. He was love. And they were drawn to him. I think one of the sad things is that people often reject Christian faith because they don't like Christians. <laughs> They're meant to like us. They're meant to find us very magnetic and attractive. And maybe it's because we're not very good at loving one another. And we need to be good at loving one another. So what is uh, love? And so Paul sort of spells it out in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, you've got to remember that Corinth was a very young, very zealous, very gifted, incredibly energetic church. I mean, it, of all the churches in, in that part of the world, you'd want to be in Corinth. You want to be in that church because it was a great church to be in. It's a wonderful church. And Corinth itself was very cosmopolitan. It was a bit like Los Angeles. It was sexually promiscuous but it was a very cosmopolitan and buzzy sort of place. And into this context, Paul writes this letter. Now, I, I think that probably out of all the uh, texts that, that Paul actually wrote, this is probably one of the most famous. Even unbelievers love this passage. It's used at funerals. It was used at funeral of die. It's used nearly uh, in every church for the wedding sermon, theme of love. Uh, it's the hallmark of great English prose, almost on a par with Shakespeare. Often when people buy a new Bible, a new version, they turn to 1 Corinthians 13 just to see how it reads, it's, if it's a, a version that they like reading. Um, but I, I, I want to say to you that when Paul was writing 1 Corinthians 13, that the last thing he had in his mind was a wedding coming up in Corinth. He didn't sit down with his cup of coffee and think, oh no, they've got this wedding coming up. Oh, no, I've got to talk about love. What am I going to write? Oh, love is patient, love is kind. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, I'll go with that. Uh, a wedding coming up was just about the last thing that was ever in Paul's mind when he wrote this. In fact, it's shocking. 
Because what he's saying to this Corinthian church, this very buzzy church, says, do you know what? You're great. You're a wonderful church, but you don't know anything about love. And you ought to be ashamed. This isn't to give us a warm glow in our tummies. <laughs> this is to make us all go red in the face and think, look at our feet and think, oh my goodness. I had no idea I was falling so short. And I've heard uh, Paul being criticised for his writings on lots of things. You know, he's criticised for his attitude on sex, his attitude on women, his attitude on church life. He, you know, they think, oh, Paul, he's so strong. He's so, you know, the, people criticise him for a lot of things. I've never, ever heard anybody criticise him for 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah, I think it's the most shocking. It's the almost rude, except he wouldn't be rude. But it's almost the most shocking text in the whole of the New Testament. And he's saying it to a, a buzzy church, and he's saying it out of love. He's saying, now look, guys, you're great, you're really good, but do you realize if you don't have this one thing, love, you're in great danger. The whole thing will fall apart. If there's no love, boy, beware. So let's uh, just have a quick look at this, because uh, he starts off by saying that you are a church of exceptional worship. Your worship was in the tongues of men and of angels. You know, the worship band was great. The choir was wonderful. The organist was ex excellent. It was absolutely exquisite. And people would travel for miles and miles and miles just to come to your church because of the worship. Do you know churches like that? But not saying. But we know churches, don't we? where the worship is absolutely amazing. People will go miles. They'll travel for hours to go to that church because of the worship. And then Paul does the hammer blow. But if you haven't got love, you're a clanging song, uh, a clanging cymbal or a resounding gong. What's Paul referring to? He's referring to the pagan temple down the road. Have you ever heard pagan worship? Dong, 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 dong. Have you ever heard Eastern mystical worship? Doing, 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 doing. Why do they do that? They do that to attract the gods' attention. They do that to drive off the demons, and they do that to excite the worshippers. I've known some worship groups to try and have a similar attitude. <laughs> and Paul says, look, do you know what? If you haven't, I don't care how good your worship is. I don't care how good your music group is. Don't, don't care how good your choir is. I don't care how good your organist is. If you haven't got love, you're no better than the pagan temple down the road. Is Paul being polite? Shocking, isn't it? Can't believe that he said it. Then he goes on. It was, it was a church of exceptional gifts. They had prophecy. They could fathom mysteries. They had knowledge. They could move mountains. And, and he, he uses this word all. All, um, uh, all knowledge, all faith, all mountains. It's amazing. And, and you think, gosh, they had giftings in abundance in their congregation. Wouldn't you love to be in a congregation where people had great prophecies and could move mountains? Wouldn't you love to be in a church where people could just move mountains by faith? Wouldn't it be wonderful? I'd love to join a church like that. But then Paul does another hammer blow. But if you haven't got love... You're nothing. <laughs> You're nothing. Well, Paul, are you being serious? You know, you can't be serious. Well, he goes on. Thirdly, he says, You're a church of exceptional sacrifice. 
Their giving in the collection plate every Sunday was unparalleled. He says, I, I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship. I think in other verses it says, give over my body to the flames. In other words, you know, their giving was, was not just the bar. It was a way above the bar. It was exceptional. They were even giving their lives away. They're giving their money away, left, right, and center. I mean, wouldn't you love to be, well, most vicars would love to be in a church where the congregation gave all they possessed. <laughs> you know, be wonderful. But again, the hammer blow. But if you haven't got love, you gain nothing. It's a complete waste of time. Three times he says, but if you haven't got love. So how do we evaluate? How do we evaluate a good church to go to? How do we evaluate a good church to be in? Well, we usually evaluate it by, well, the worship's got to be good and there's got to be uh, you know, lots of gifting and uh, lots of giving so the coffee's brilliant at the end of the service and you know, all that sort of stuff. And Paul says, no, you're looking at the wrong things. And instead, there's nothing wrong with those things. Believe me, they're great. And Paul's not knocking their worship or their giving or their gifting. He's saying, but you're missing the most important thing. The most important thing in any congregation is that the congregation love one another. Otherwise, you haven't started. And it doesn't matter if the, con- if the choir's out of tune. It doesn't matter if the guitar's out of tune. It doesn't matter if they're not very gifted. It doesn't really matter if they're not really giving very much. But actually, the most important thing is that they really love one another. Because without love, we haven't even started. And so he ends in verse 13. He says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? Well, because it's about who God is, isn't it? See, God doesn't need faith because he knows everything. He doesn't need hope because he, you know, there's nothing that surprises him. But the one thing God is, and he will always be, is love. So whenever you and I act in love towards one another, whenever we go out of our comfort zone and actually act in love towards one another, what we're doing is we're acting exactly like God. And God says, that is a church I want to bless. I want to bless a church of love. I want to bless a church where they're actually putting my character into practice. But let's face it, loving one another is pretty challenging. And when I say that, don't start looking at other people, all right? (laughs) It is really challenging, isn't it? I mean, frankly, because we're so different. We come from different backgrounds, different types, different everything, you know. And we're thrown together in these crazy places called churches. We're meant to get on with each other. And we're meant to, even worse than that, we're meant to love one another. It's really difficult. You know that lovely doggerel? To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. (laughs) It's not easy. It's not easy, actually, to love one another. And that was the point, really, what Paul was doing in chapter 13, verse 4 to 8. He was just pointing out to them how difficult it was because they were full of envy. They were boasting. They were proud. They were being rude to each other. They were self-seeking. They only thought about themselves. They were easily angered. They were keeping records of wrongs. So he was making them feel really quite shamed that actually they weren't putting love into practice. But what I love about Paul's description of love is that it's not a feeling, it's action. And that's really important. Because when Jesus says to us, you must love one another, 
and he commands us to love one another. You can't command a feeling, can you? I can't command you to feel anything. I can't say to you, be happy, be sad, be angry. You can't command a feeling, but you can command action. And so in the, the story of the, the uh, Good Samaritan, at the end of the story of the Good Samaritan, and the Samaritan had great compassion on the guy in the, in the, in the ditch, um, the point is that at the end of it, Jesus says, now go and do likewise. He didn't say go and feel likewise. He didn't say go and feel compassion. He says go and do it. So love is actually doing it, not feeling it. And I sometimes, when I'm feeling brave, I say to my congregation sometimes, do you know, sometimes I don't like you very much. But that's okay, because you don't like me very much, sometimes. But I hope, God willing, I will always do love. I'll always act in love towards you. And God willing, I hope that you'll always act in love towards me. And if we act in love, if we do love, then actually we begin to feel it, don't we? That's the great clue, incidentally, to marriage. <laughs> Sometimes we don't feel, but we do love each other. And then the feelings come. Um, here's a little test for you. Uh, Piccadilly Circus. In the middle of Piccadilly Circus, there's a monument. What's on top of the monument? How many think Eros? And I, you know, that's what I thought. And I thought, you know, this, this, this monument in the middle of Piccadilly Circle is meant to commemorate the Earl of Shaftesbury, who was a great philanthropist. And what is more inappropriate than to have a statue of Eros, which is about romantic, erotic love? That's more to do with the other side of the road in Soho. Until I, so I googled it. I thought, how come they put Eros on them? Until I actually discovered, apparently, that the statue is not Eros. It's, it's Eros's brother, twin brother, Ant Eros. Anteros. And Anteros was the god of self-sacrificial love. Not about feeling, not about eroticism. It's about doing. Apparently, Anteros has got shorter hair than Eros. I didn't know that personally, but there you go. So if you go the next time you go to Piccadilly Circuit, it's not Eros in the middle, right? It's his twin brother, Anteros. Because it's about doing, it's not about feeling. And the point about the church here is the church looked good, it sounded good, it had an excellent reputation, but was actually in danger, serious danger, because they weren't practicing love. And actually what Paul is saying here is that they're immature, they're childish. They need to grow up. That's what verse 11 is all about. When I was a child, I taught like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. In other words, Paul is saying, and actually he says it several times to, to Corinth, stop being childish. Because children actually, bless their hearts, they only think about themselves. It's all about me, isn't it? Uh, they've discovered on the statute books uh, a little-known law which has got lost in the passage of time. They've just discovered this law. It's called the toddler property law. It goes like this. Toddlers say, if it's mine, it's mine. If it's yours, it's mine. If I like it, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a while ago, it's mine. 
If I say it's mine, it's mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. If I say I saw it first, it's mine. If you're having fun with it, it's mine. And if you put your toy down for one minute, it's mine. If it's broken, it's yours. <laughs> Paul says it's childish. That's how we used to behave. I used to talk like a child. I used to talk, walk like a child. I used to think like a child. But we need to put it away. Here's another test for anyone that's had children. What's the first word children say, babies say? Mama or dada. In my children's case, of course, it was dada. <laughs> Mama or dada. What's the second word children say? No. No. You know, if ever, if ever you needed a proof for original sin, that is it. You don't have to teach a child to say no. They do it perfectly now. You don't ever have to teach a child to be rude. They'll do it perfectly naturally. No. And, you know, unless as us parents, unless we actually train our children to be polite, uh, you know, they'll be professional burglars by the age of two, you know. No. But what is the third word every children say? Mine. Mine. My toys. My food. My clothes. My room. My place. My seat. Mine. And actually, you know, this whole thing and its inbuilt in us, mine, mine, my life, my possessions, my house, my decisions, my rights. And some people go to their deathbeds still clutching their fingers and saying, mine, mine. And the whole of the Christian life is God teaching us to say, Lord, not mine, but thine, but thine. Even Jesus struggled. He said, Lord, Father, take this cup away from me. But not mine be done, but thine. We will always struggle with that. We'll spend the whole the rest of our lives actually learning to open our hands and say, Lord, thine, thy will, thy name, thy kingdom. It's not about me, it's about you. And Paul says to them, look, you're going to have to stop being childish. Just put it away. Put it away. And I think that's the danger. The danger of uh, gifted, charismatic, buzzy churches. Actually, that we forget. We forget about love. And actually, they become very self-centered. It's all about me. Sometimes, sometimes even our worship songs can be too much about me, too much about us. And there's a place for that, I know that. But we need to remind people, no, it's, it's not about that, it's about love. Now, it's not just uh, young churches, it's older churches too. I uh, love what John Wimber once prayed, oh God, help me to grow up before I grow old. <laughs> I love that. Help me to grow up, Lord. Help me not to be childish. And the whole time, we're going to spend the whole of our lives learning how to grow up and not insisting on mine, but thine. Do you see how we've domesticated 1 Corinthians 13? <laughs> 
Paul is going right to the nub of things. And of course, it, the gospel is, is the absolute uh, powerhouse for it, isn't it? Because John writes, we love. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. And actually, we'll never start loving one another until we've actually learned that God loves us. It's, it's actually, as we center on the gospel, we, we remember, God, you love me, you love me, you love me. I don't deserve it, but you love me. That Actually, that frees us up to say, as if we're going to love one another. And uh, in some ways, you know, if we don't do that, then it's a waste of time, really, because we haven't started. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary on uh, the letters of John, he tells this lovely story about the, the aged uh, Apostle John. And uh, when the Apostle John was in his old age uh, in Ephesus, uh, he was very old, very frail. He had to be carried into the service every single Sunday. And every single Sunday, they, they would want him to speak. Well, of course. I mean, who, who wouldn't want the Apostle John to be speaking to you this morning? You know, the one that Jesus loved most, apparently, and the one that was, wrote the gospel, the one that wrote the letters, the one that saw everything. Wouldn't we love it if John was the one? And they, they wheeled John in every Sunday. And, and he, said, he said this. He said, uh, my children... Love one another. Love one another. Then they wheel him out. The next week, they wheeled him in. He said, love one another. Then they wheeled him out. The next Sunday, they wheeled him in. Love one another. Then they wheeled him out. Well, they get a bit fed up with this after a month or two. And they said, John, do you not have any other sermons? <laughs> you know, is there nothing else you can... And he, he said to them this. He said, my children, if this is all you do, it's enough. It's what the Lord asks you to do. You must love one another. Have you come across uh, Andrew, Andrew White? Andrew White, the uh, vicar of Baghdad. He's a lovely guy. Very eccentric. <laughs> Very eccentric. Um, but when he was in Baghdad, of course, he can't be there at the moment because of all kind of troubles. But when he was in Baghdad, he would end the service every single week. And he'd say to the congregation before they left, Al-Hab, Al-Hab, Al-Hab. Which means love, love, love. And we're called to love one another. And it's hard. It's difficult. It's very, very costly. I never knew it was going to cost me so much, would we say. It's very costly and time-consuming and difficult. We know that. But that's what we're called to do, to love one another. So we're going to, we're going to pray. We're going to have a um, time for prayer. There's, there's time. We're going to have sort of prayer at the back, aren't we? We'll, we'll, we'll have some worship. And, uh, and if during the worship you would like to be prayed for, either something, anything that's been said from this morning, or indeed for anything else. Do you know, one of the things about loving one another is for us to be there for each other and to pray for each other and to share the burden for another, one another. So, you know, let's do that. If you would like prayer this morning, then why not just make your way to the back? Susie and I will be there as well as others will be there to pray for you. And... Uh, just take this opportunity. You know, we don't have many opportunities to pray for one another, but 
We just need to grab it whenever we can. So I encourage you to do that. But let's stand, let's pray. And then the, um, the worship guys are going to lead us in some songs. Lord, I, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, the most important thing that we can do is to love one another, is to care for one another, is to look after one another, to honour one another, respect one another. So Lord, would you come by your Holy Spirit and give us that deep desire to actually act in love towards one another. And forgive us, Lord, when we so often fail in that. But if we are a church of love, Lord, then that's very magnetic, very attractive. And we will draw people. And that's our heart's desire, Lord, is to draw people to the churches that we belong to. To be places where the broken can find wholeness, where those that are lonely can find rest. Those that are fearful can find peace. Those that are guilty can find freedom. And they'll only do that, dear God, in, a, in an atmosphere of love and acceptance and generosity. So Lord, make us those kind of places. That your name would be glorified. That your kingdom would come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask this in Jesus' name.